Hi everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor. And I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and serial investor. In today's episode, we're talking about Optus's 14-hour outage which stopped the nation, the disastrous rise and fall of Sam Bankman-Fried, and the economics of the home meal kit sector. And welcome episode 13, Adir. It is uh, great to be here again. Lucky 13. Very lucky. <laughs> How was... We were a bit late filming today, recording today, because you, you played soccer today, so which is pretty impressive. At, at, I think your Gen X, as we've, we've talked about, and still be running around Lionel Messi style is, is super impressive. Is that the most? That is the most backhanded compliment I've ever received. <laughs> I will say as well, you may, you may, you may say it's impressive because you haven't seen me play. I didn't grow up with this sport. I think the first time I kicked a soccer ball was like in my like in a serious way was in my early twenties, maybe even later than that. I grew up playing like like you. We, I played cricket. You were big cricketer and footy at Caulfield Grammar. Yeah. That's what yeah, I did. Exactly. Same as you. Yep. I think you were a bit better than me though. From, I think you, you toured England and did all sorts of stuff. So We were a different, different we were, era. You'll never know if different I was good or not or if, because we were in different different age brackets as you keep reminding me. So okay. <laughs> The guy, I, I, tell, I want to tell you a story about my cricketing at Caulfield Grammar, which you'll, you'll actually, I don't think I've ever told you this. So the captain of my cricket team when I was playing in the, Caulfield firsts, and I did that. Um, yeah, right. I went, we went on this weird English cricket tour, which was a bizarre experience, but a lot of it was pretty amazing. The captain of my team was Bruce Matherson Jr., back then known as Young Bruce, <laughs> whose dad the is king or the Pokies Prince, the, yeah, whose dad is like this pub baron, right? And actually, and I, you know, there was no, I would say that family is one of the <laughs> nicest families that I have ever ever met you know that like bruce matherson senior he was already extremely wealthy by the time like i met him and this guy is a guy that didn't go to uni as far as i know literally bought a pub worked his way up totally down to earth the family totally down to earth no airs and graces just a, a really kind generous nice family and i will say he had a crick they live in they lived when back then in brighton in Melbourne, I understand that, that he's moved up to the Gold Coast now, and um, and in the backyard, which is a big backyard, it was like right on the beach, <laughs> like you literally jump the front fence, the, the back fence, and you land on the sand pretty much. But in the backyard, they had a wow. cricket net <laughs> with a bowling machine, and he would turn that bowling machine on. Like so wasn't there a story with James and Kerry Packer? And and like and, these, and Kerry Packer would put poor James with yeah. a hundred and seventy k balls or something like that. No, I think he also invited these like West Indian cricketers over yeah. and just the bowl these balls at him at you know like crazy speeds. And so we put this bowling machine on in the backyard, and I can tell you what it was like. It was like fireballs coming out of yeah. this thing. But you it was those a lot yellow of balls, those hard yellow yeah. balls, right? Yeah, it could not speak highly enough of that family. So yes, I can't. I don't even know how we got onto this topic. We talk about your sporting, your um, David Beckham style sporting career. There is have nothing. The, speaking of shows, have you watched the Beckham documentary yet? I haven't, but I saw I saw it. Have you seen it? Yeah, I watched it a couple of weeks ago. It's uh, is it as good as the Last Dance? I'd say Last Dance is probably edges it out, but it's uh, it to be talked in the same sentence as Last Dance is. You, you know, you're in a pretty good. I don't know anybody who doesn't like it. And the other thing with the Beckham doco is I don't know anybody who 
hasn't said, I think much more highly of Bex and Posh having watched it. I think they came out really well. He's the kind of guy you just want to hang out with. He seems like such a down-to-earth, nice guy. And she seems really good as well. It's been, I think, a really great move from them. And I didn't realise, I'm not sure if you did, but 98, I didn't really follow the 1998 World Cup. And that was when he got red-carded for what – a little sort of uh, tap of the leg, yeah. and this was Australia. Remember Lucas Neal in two thousand six? He got red. He got. I think he got. He got the penalty against Italy, and everybody, every Australian, blamed the umpire for a terrible umpire decision, which it, or the ref for a terrible ref decision, which it was. Uh, but UK yeah. didn't blame the ref. UK blamed Beckham, and he was the most hated man in England. It's just. It's a, what a difference between the Australian and UK mentality that. Yeah, they took down, and he came back in two thousand two, and I know. and was a hero again. So it was, I don't want to ruin the ruin the story for you, but I don't think you can ruin the story. Like well, I mean, well, it's, no. ha- it's happened. Yeah, it's true. happened. True. It's the history. You know, I can't usually talk about TV. It's quite remarkable that I can even talk about this because I I don't even own a TV. Like really, well, you're, you're re- a Gen Z now these days. I, I, if I want to watch something on s- streaming, remember I told you I subscribe to all streaming, but I watch almost nothing. And so I. How do you I watch, watch the streaming then? If you've got uh, on my massive, curved gaming computer monitor. Ah, uh, of course. That's how I watch it. And so got it. Uh, it's very. It's rare that I watch anything. I actually last night, or I think the last couple of days, watched. Have you seen the documentary about GameStop? It, not the movie. The do, three-part documentary about GameStop with Guy Raz narrating it. No, I haven't. Oh, Guy Raz narrates it. How I built this Guy Raz. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, so. I love wa- You should watch it, and we should compare notes on it. I thought it was Definitely. so well made. You've got the same disposition that I have, which is you just hate insiders taking advantage of systems and looking at outsiders, and like you're going, you're going to smash mm. your TV when you watch this thing. Uh, uh, that, that it was a deep, deep effing value as the guy who's the main guy in that, right? And he, yeah. he seems like a real anti-hero. Um, yeah, I don't, he's not. It's hard to work out if he's the villain or the hero of this, but I will say. You know, you would know about this stuff. I mean, once again, I'm not ruining it for you. Like, this is a well-reported thing. You know, the the payment for order flow, which is how Robin Hood was... The Robin yeah. Hood stuff. I mean, yeah. I think Citadel and Robin Hood look like the real villains of this, and the system looks like the real villains of this. And I think that's probably legitimate, to be honest. Well, Robin Hood, taking that aside, they are as uh, evil a business almost as you can come by. Remember there was a young kid, there was a 20-year-old kid who was trading on Robinhood during during the pandemic where they basically weaponized options trading. So all these kids who would have otherwise been gambling or whatever suddenly are playing with hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of options because they, and, they, and they gamify it. So every time you place a bet, they or every time you play it, and they make, put like confetti and so it's, yeah. it's like the pokies. Well, p- place a bet is a pretty accurate way to describe it, I think, this kind of share investing. But yeah, there was the, the young kid who who thought he was down, I think $300,000 or something like that. It turned out Robin Hood had just stuffed it up. There was a tech error. Yeah. And because they were didn't have any customer, you could, basically couldn't call customer support. So this poor kid was trying to call customer support, couldn't, call, couldn't reach anybody and committed suicide. Uh, Absolutely terrible. Well, I should say, since I mentioned it, I hadn't planned to talk about this, but I should say payment for order flow is basically this idea where instead of charging the customer for placing an order to buy stock, they effectively sell the right to execute that order to some like middle, let's call it a middleman is what you would probably used to call it. A market maker. Right? A market maker, exactly, who has buyers and sellers and they match them, but they match them slightly unequally and they keep yep. the clip of the ticket in between. And, you know, there's a line in there that, that is a great line I've heard before, which is like, if you're not paying for something, then you're the product. 
And I think that that's absolutely correct. And, you know, this idea of payment, because it's so, I would call it pernicious, this idea of payment for order flow, it's banned in a whole heap of countries and not banned in the US. And I would highly recommend watching this documentary. It's a real eye-opener. And, you know, a lot of Gen Z and the bottom end of Gen Y in particular, they talk about the system being rigged against them, the system of capitalism being rigged against them. And I've got a lot of sympathy for them, basically. Like, I think, I don't know if it's deliberately rigged against them, but it's effectively rigged against them in my view. Yeah, so it's not just the, it's almost every asset class has been in a bubble for 20 years. So inherently, when the price of an asset goes up, it makes it worse for those who don't own the asset. And if you're younger, you never leave on that. So the deck is absolutely stacked against anyone who doesn't own assets. And it is for for every class. Uh, and that's why there's anger. Uh, and it's just not understood properly. So that, And you have the Greens going on sort of rent freezes and, and the wrong policies to fix a problem that, that absolutely exists. You see it in uni costs and college costs in the States. That's right. Well, the Greens are hopeless. We can forget about them. Let's never talk about their ideas ever again because they're so hopeless and I consider them to be dishonest, a dishonest organisation. However, I would say, I've said this before, and it's something I believe very strongly, in the next few decades, there has to be some new and improved version of capitalism because continuing, you know, this idea of wealth polarisation, it's not a bug in capitalism. It's a feature of capitalism. Like I always say, it's in the name. If you've got capital capitalism is good for you it's not called laborism and so that's going to have to be fixed or else you know this is going to go down a bad road where too many people are going to feel too disadvantaged and we're going to have our you know um like let them eat cake moment at some point in in western civilization if we don't fix this so i think it, it like you know occupy wall street is not the way to go about this but there has to be some sensible changes that are made to let younger people and frankly just Poorer people without capital, you know, have a better have better opportunities, which was the core advantage of capitalism over previous systems. Well, every empire eventually collapses: Romans, Greeks, Egyptian, etc. The U.S. empire has effectively ruled since probably into the First World War, certainly into the Second World War, and the amount of debt that's been loaded onto the U.S. system, which has really been furthering that wealth gap. So if you, if you look at the average wage in the US hasn't increased in real terms, it's like 1972, I think. And if you look at the rich has gone from something like owning, if you're talking about the rich, the top 1% has gone from owning something like 20% of assets to 60%. Whatever the polarization is, is massive. So if you're not super rich, you've gotten a lot poorer. And if you're rich, you've gotten a lot richer in the States. And eventually it just topples over. So I'm not sure how long, the, and, and that's I think that's why the US is actually more sensitive to inflation than Australia. Australia and we'll talk about this in a, in a little while, but Australia, Australians don't seem to be as sensitive. And that's why I think the, the RBA has gotten away with not having interest rates at the correct level because Australians don't seem to be as sensitive as inflation as as, as Europe or, the, or certainly the US. I think you're right. I mean, w- w- so we can fix this. I don't mean you and I, although maybe we can fix it, but someone is going to have to fix this capitalist system because we don't, we want it to keep going for a long time yet. And so we're going to need to make adjustments. And, you know, when America, I have these conversations with Americans. I mean, to be honest, most of the Americans I know are centrist Americans, which puts them to the right of me, but not, not far to the right of me. And so they're quite sympathetic to all of this. 
But, you know, Americans, in my experience, they get a bit worked up about socialism. And, you know, they tell me when I tell them about Australia and about our social security here and the safety nets, they tell me it's socialist. But I just remind them, you know, socialism, really that was the antidote to some of the worst excesses of capitalism and we kept some of it in our societies i mean there are regulators that stop cartels that stop insider trading there we have a whole lot of socialist concepts even the u.s does that have that have um that have been incorporated into their system and so this is not a new concept i think it just has to uh, continue can i change the topic to something much more much lighter absolutely Uh, you're going to have an opinion about this i'm very interested in your opinion everyone who listens is going to have an opinion about this So when I go into a cafe or restaurant, one of my most hated experiences is wait staff who do not write down my order. (laughs) I was going to say, is that what it was? Yeah. Because I believe in- There's nothing worse than that. You agree. You agree. Yeah. Oh, million percent agree. Because I think like you have to look on the, like I'm a big believer in the risk reward curve. Yeah. And so you think about not writing down the order. So yeah. what's the reward of not writing down the order? They they can prove to me that they're amazing and they've got a great memory and they can remember the 15 items that I've ordered at the table with four people. That's great. And so how much prestige does that give them? Like maybe one star out of five, maybe two stars. But when they get the order wrong or forget, or the best case is they come back and say, remind me what you ordered again. That's better than not asking, right? And but so when they bring you the wrong stuff, or what, that's a five out of five star bad outcome, right? And so the risk reward curve is not skewed in favor of not writing stuff down. And so what I had, I had this experience the other day, which was the most remarkable of all experiences I've had in this situation. This sounds like an old man's rant, this conversation. But so a waiter comes over and I feel very heartened by them pulling out a notepad old and school. pen. Good. Amazing. <laughs> they ask me the order and they ask the person I'm sitting with and we have an order. It's maybe five items. They proceed to not write down <laughs> any of it on the paper. Not taunting you with a better... Absolutely. What were they doing a portrait of you or something? Nothing. No, no, no ink hit, <laughs> hit uh, pulp, let's say. Okay. They go away. Two minutes later, they come back and say, oh, can I just ask you about... Just remind me of something that you ordered. Okay. Then they proceed to say, tell me your whole order again. <laughs> and then do not write it down again. <laughs> I like, I'm not generally, I don't like the tipping culture of the US coming to Australia. I don't think that's a great thing. I think we should just pay people properly mm. and not have to tip because there's all sorts of, um, there's lots of things that are very unfair with how tipping happens and who gets tipped and how much. Mm. But I do think that I just want to tip people that write down my order. Did they <laughs> get it is, right? With the, the, the guy who twice didn't write When they write came it back a second time? Yeah, did, so I they mean, never wrote it down. It was, it was a pretty basic order. My recollection is they actually did get it right. But the thing is this, I'm not here saying praise, spending five minutes praising how fantastic it was that they got it right. I think, what is the job of wait staff? Their job is make me feel good, that's important. That's cool. That's why that's hospitality, yeah. like being hospitable. It's in, like in the name again. And write down my order and bring me the correct order. So I'd say those are the three things. Two of the three are pretty much hygiene factors. Write it down. Bring the right stuff. So Don't I just, drop it. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I consistently don't understand this trend towards um, not writing down orders. Have you noticed as well, when did this happen? Now when you go into a restaurant or even a cafe, you have to wait to be seated. That was not the case 10 years ago. Do you agree? I don't find I've had to wait too long to be seated. Not too long. I'm not saying too long. There's a sign that says, please wait to be seated. I don't don't, don't mind waiting to be seated. I think it's okay. I'm not saying that you mind it. (laughs) I'm just saying, when did that start? That wasn't 10 years ago. I wasn't standing behind a sign that said, please wait. Australia was a country where you walked into a cafe. When there was a table, you went and sat at the table. I don't mind mind that. It's chaotic. I I think having people wait to be seated is, I reckon for restaurants have always had that. So I'm I'm not... I think your, your, your writing down comment is 100% correct. I think the waiting to be seated one's probably a bit of a, a an old man whinge there. <laughs> I'm not saying I oppose waiting to be seated. I'm just saying when I used to, you know, I travel to the US a lot, they've got please wait to be seated. I went yeah, to the absolutely. US and I'm, so if people said to me 10 years ago, tell me a difference between restaurants in the US and Australia. I'd say, well, they call on main course entree, they have to give <laughs> tips, the portion size is for a family of 15 when I order for one, <laughs> and like also you have to please wait to be seated. But now that's a universal thing in Australia, isn't it? It's universal. Oh, I think it's I think it's probably bracket creep of waiting to be said, but I don't think it's the other thing that I love about the US. And when I, I lived there for six months and three months over a couple of different periods, and the ability to get a t- to go bag anywhere mm-hmm. or, or take out as they call it or whatever, uh, um, that is the most amazing thing ever. Oh, you yeah, go to agree. the fanciest restaurant in the city and have. Partly because I hate waste, and partly, as you said, because the serving size is so big. The ability to get a to-go bag on a really fancy dinner that you can then have the next day at home is next level. I uh, I wish Australia did that, and they, they make some excuse here that it's it's some sort of food safety reason, which is which is ridiculous. There's no food safety reason. You, you can get takeaway. You can get food put on a plate to take away. You can get it in an in authentic Asian restaurants in Australia. Can you get it at Flower Drum? I'm not sure that the high-end places. I said authentic <laughs> Asian restaurants in Australia. So if you go to Chinatown okay. and you go to an authentic Asian restaurant or to, Vic- Victoria. Or to yeah, like Victoria, Street. Victoria Street, for example, you know, then then you can get it. But you know what? If you say, can I have yeah. containers to take it away? Yeah. The difference is they give, give the, US, the container. they pack up in yeah. nice containers. They take the food away and pack it up. And in Australia, if you go to these restaurants, they just bring you these containers and it's like over to you. Yeah. I don't mind that. I, 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 the worst people who don't even let you take it at all, whereas US let you, let you take everything, which I think is a much better They're way. They're big on service. And a, and a much less wasteful service. way. Yeah, and that goes back to the tipping. I, I, when I worked in Canada for at a cafe, I gave incredible service because I because it was I was getting hundred percent of the tip. So I actually, uh, in difference, I really like a tipping culture, and I think it promotes. Does Canada have tipping? It's semi tipping. I worked at a cafe. Well, restaurants absolutely have tipping, and I worked at a cafe in which Americans tipped and Canadians and Australians definitely didn't. Canadians probably would. So we get. I was getting like six bucks an hour then, and I probably got another four or five bucks an hour in tips. But tell me about your tipping attitude in Australia. So you go to, a, let's say you go to a restaurant. I don't, no, I'm talking about fine dining. Let's say you go to a yep. restaurant where it's the, it's maybe $50, $40 or $50 per person, no alcohol, okay? That's a, that's a really good point in that I would traditionally have always tipped, but you know what's happened in the last probably 18 months is that with tap and go, 
the, the server doesn't actually even give you the chance to tip most of the time. So often I find I'm not tipping when I would have tipped because I just tap and they, they never give mm. you. You know, sometimes I'll say, do you want to give a tip? And you, you'll do, and you sort of pressure into it even if you don't want to. But there's now they, they basically just give you the thing, you tap it and you go and there's no tip It's option. interesting that you, you so historically give tips because if someone said to me, if we hadn't had this conversation and someone said, do you think that Adam Schwab gives tips at restaurants? I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't know what to answer to that because you know, basically, it could go either way. Either you could be like, I really care about the the wait staff, and you know, the, I think that I mean they they earn yeah. fair money in Australia. That's the main difference between here and the US. But you might say, I really care about wait staff, and like I always tip. Or you might say, Oh, they earn fi- the money's fine. Why should I tip? Like that the employee employer pay them. But it sounds to me like historically you've gone to in the direction of leaving tips at restaurants. Is that only if the service is good? Because in the US, if the service is terrible and you don't leave a tip, you are going to get chased down the street, yeah. right? Like literally chased down the street. Oh, I think it's rare that you get really bad service. So I don't, I don't recall many times of getting bad, terrible service. Mm. But, um, and in part mainly because I used to work in hospitality myself for quite a few years. And I'm probably more inclined to tip because of that. But if, yeah, if the service was horrific, uh, I wouldn't tip. But that almost never happens. So- I Your I'd standard probably, is tipping in Australia, 10% tip. I would tip probably 95 to 98% of the time. I would and think. how much tip? 10%? 10%, yeah. US is like, you know. It's 15, 15, to, probably 15 to 18. I think it's 15 to 18 yeah. is in the US, yeah. So, so they don't get paid like, proper salaries in the US. So when you go to the US, so in New York, you basically have to double whatever that says on the on the menu, you double it because you've got tip, tax, and conversion. Mm. Or actually more than double it now. So you, yeah. it says 20, it's really 42, so – it's, uh, That's true. It's tough. And that was a great chat idea. And we'll go to a, a really quick ad break and be back with our first story on the Optus disaster. So, idea, what do you think of the challenge of hiring developers and product managers these days? Oh, I think um, that's got to be one of the toughest parts of, uh, of growing a business, especially with the uh, demand for talent at the moment. I couldn't agree more, and that's why at Luxury Escapes, we boost our onshore team with developers from Petona, a fully Australian-owned and managed platform that was built to help businesses scale up with less capital, ultimately getting profitable faster. With Petona, they'll help you scale or build your team with incredible talent in places like Sri Lanka, Philippines, or India via a permanent remote staff or contractors. So should I assume that based on... Um, your enthusiasm, you've been working with Petona and you like them? I actually used to be really sceptical of hiring any developers offshore, but the beauty of Petona is it's owned and operated by Australians and led by Simon Lee, who's built and scaled multiple tech businesses, so you can really trust them to find great talent. We actually started with just a couple of resources and scaled to more than 15 team members. So Petona are perfect for businesses looking to scale. If you're pre-product, they're probably not for you. But they work with smaller businesses as well as big enterprise clients, including Treasury Wine Estates, Accolade Wines, Luxury Escapes, of course, Little Birdie, Impos, and Old Sale. If you're struggling to find and scale a tech team, then go to the Petona website at petona.com.au and click on Get Started. For our first real story, we have the 14-hour Optus outage which stopped the nation. At 4am on Wednesday morning, the Optus network crashed, leaving emergency service lines down and even some trains not operational. By 6pm, Optus was back online after it was able to manually restart its router reflectors. 
Optus had become a lightning rod for criticism. Just a year after it was infamously hacked, exposing user data. CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosemarin has been on the end of much of the criticism, including from Communications Minister Michelle Rowland, for failing to adequately communicate to customers. The Financial Review this week claimed Bayer-Rosemarin has gone from lauded executive to public enemy. Coincidentally, on Thursday, Optus announced softer financial results, with earnings dropping 14% to $141 million. So, dear, what's your take on the Optus disaster and how damaging is this second incident in the space of a year? Well, I think calling Kelly a, what, a public enemy or whatever it is is very rough. I like Kelly, although she does, from time to time does ignore my emails, but <laughs> I still like her and I find her uh, – she's smart and very competent and like her intentions – with that business are very good. How do you know her though? You, is there any CEO in Australia you don't know on a on a first first name basis? <laughs> I got I got I got introduced to her through mutual contact, and it, it was nothing in particular we were talking about. Someone said to me, "I think you'll really enjoy meeting Kelly," and we caught up. And, uh, and I'm, in fact, I can speak to you openly about. It. I think Catherine Brenner actually introduced me to her originally. I'm slightly right. I'm bringing down. You know, when you play someone in tennis and you they take him down to your level. I'm, I'm right. I'm bringing you down to my level. And you, you've been hanging out with all these ASX 20 CEOs and suddenly you're doing a podcast with me. <laughs> this is I, I, I keep telling you, this is the highlight of my week. And I don't say that with any sarcasm whatsoever. This is the most enjoyable, it, it started off as the most enjoyable 45 minutes of my week. I think now it's the most enjoyable one hour and 45 minutes of my week. We do go a little long. The problem, the thing I don't really understand about the communication strategy Kelly has taken with Optus, with the hack and also, you know, with this outage, is she has got one of the best crisis managers in the whole country working for her, and that is Gladys Berejiklian. And why is she just not saying to Gladys, I'm going to roll you out, you're going to take responsibility for the messaging around this, you know, you may not be on the same side of politics as the current government, but... Your, your birds of a feather, right? Like, you know how one another interacts and what's right. And, you know, the fact that Michelle Rowland came out and did that press conference. You know, Michelle Rowland, I read, I don't know Michelle Rowland at all. I read that I she. Say, did you also email her? I don't know her, but right. I read that she hates doing press conferences. Hates. Yeah, I saw that as well. And so basically, you should not put a minister in. You can't win a war against a minister. And. You should not put them in a position where they have to do things that they hate in order to get information from you. I just don't know why Gladys is not front and centre with these problems. She's so she's so believable. She's so credible. She's so politically sophisticated that when you're the, when you're the CEO of an inf- a major infrastructure provider in Australia, you know I always say there are these jobs that are not considered to be politics, but they are political jobs, and this is one of them. I hope that this is not you know, like a downhill run for Kelly because there's been a couple of pretty significant problems that I think the, the perception is that they weren't handled from a communications perspective very well. But And I think I, I just don't understand why Gladys is not front and centre in this. I have I will say I, I did have lunch. I did, was at a lunch with Gladys while she was still Premier. Of course you were. And <laughs> it was a small lunch that I was invited to. And you, you know who put it on? Jason Falinski, who I spoke about. Oh, yeah. Uh, who's a who's fan fantastic. Of the show, I think. I, he's a fan of the show. I'm a huge fan of his. He's a, I hope That's he gets back into Parliament. Yeah. And um, I'll tell you the funny story about lunch with Gladys. Um, so she's 
highly intelligent and very sophisticated. And I thought was like a huge loss when um, she resigned. And most of the lunch that I had, I'm not going to say the specific details of there, but most of it was, let's say there were 10 other people there, me copying an absolute flogging for being a Victorian because it was the time that Andrews was doing all of these lockdowns. And I said to Gladys, you will not find somebody that is more vocally outspoken <laughs> about these lockdowns than me. And so um, but so anyway, I think she's fantastic and they should just give her the responsibility of managing government relations through all of these crises. Oh, let's not forget that Gladys locked New South Wales down, or like Sydney down for like three months. Well, I so want to talk about. I, I don't think we can. Yeah. She maybe was not as bad as Dan, but she caved in the end, which was which was disappointing. Um, she was under extreme pressure. I'm not denying that. Extreme but, but pressure. So, were, so was every politician, and, and some no, didn't I'm not cave. Excuses. Um, it was a mistake. It was clearly it was a shut school. Let's not make. Yeah, let's not. Let's not forget what happened there. Um, yeah, Perrottet was very opposed to that. By the I way, I know, and, and he would never forget. Very opposed. Perrottet opened the. Had Perrottet not opened the borders, they still would have probably been shut three years later. Though. So it's. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Gladys gets a free pass there. But anyway, I, I think I actually think that that Kelly I don't think she's handling it well at all. I think her communication strategy is like is, is insane. I think you've got to over communicate here in this situation. But on the flip side, uh, it feels like there's just an absolute pile on. People want to blame someone. It's some technical error that happens some, somewhere deep in Optus' system that nobody really understands or no that no normal person understands. Well, you say that. Well, let me just pull you up on that because I know that the line that was rolled too out technical. was yeah. it's too complicated to be able to explain in a sound bite. I'm not really a fan of that line. I think the demonstration of someone who really understands an issue is an ability to explain complexity with simplicity. I'm not denying that either. And I, I don't think that I was think a you good remember answer, the, the, And you talked about it a few minutes ago. The, when you get a CEO of a company this size, you're not a product person you may be a salesperson, but you're probably more likely to be a politician. And you've got to be really good at being liked by people who are, who are senior to you. I think Kelly was another one of the Gonski's protégés we've talked about. Obviously, your, your friend Catherine's a, another one. And they've done very well climbing the corporate ladder. But it's a very different different, different job being technically good or great at product, which as well, most founders are, to be a great corporate executive. And it's a great skill that I, I don't have and will never have. Uh, but they're not usually technical people and they're not usually product people. So expecting them to be that is wrong. So whilst I don't think she's I, – I, I wouldn't hire someone who's worked at CBA for 10 years like she did. I just, that's not the kind of person I would, I would ever hire. Uh, but they would obviously do well in an organisation like Optus, owned by, by Singtel, obviously. Uh, but I think people expect the wrong thing of it. I don't know what she could have said. She didn't know what was going on. She didn't know that. For, for Michelle Rowan, the communication minister, to complain that she didn't call me, well – why the hell does the CEO need to call the minister? What the hell is the minister going to do? Some like union hack who's going to suddenly, suddenly that, that makes it better? No, but let me tell you why. Let me tell you why it's important, okay? Politicians, their fear is that something beyond their control is going to tarnish them. And that is a legitimate fear in democratic politics, like in a democracy. And so what you had here... I mean, the biggest indictment of this whole affair is how susceptible we have left Australia's key infrastructure. That is the biggest issue here. Yes, I think if I was in this situation running this company and this happened, I would get on the front foot and I would be out there and speaking about it 
as early as I possibly could and say, we don't know what it is. We don't really have a time frame, but we're going to make sure that we do everything for customers and keep you informed and not have an information vacuum. Okay, fine. But this has exposed problems in Australia's infrastructure security. And the fact that a, a train system can be shut down this easily is deeply worrying, hospitals, whatever else it is. And there is no doubt that the government has taken a bit of a hit as a, as a carry-on consequence of this. And Michelle Rowland is probably terrified that something she doesn't understand, because it is technically complicated, and she doesn't control, is going to imperil her position as a minister. And I think that is why, in these situations, you just call politicians and you say... This is what's happened. My lines of communication are open. If you get asked questions that are tough or whatever, this is my, you know, my number. I'll make sure I get back to you quickly. That just keeps politicians calm. I think that's why it's important. You may be very well be correct there, but this feels like Michelle Rowland scoring political points of something that's completely irrelevant. So whether she was told or not isn't actually important. What's important was that Optus and Kelly was working to fix the problem, which, which she was. I'd much rather the CEO of Optus being in the nerve centre like she was, trying to fix the problem, not speaking to some idiot minister who six months ago wasn't even a minister and has probably never had a job outside politics. So I, I'm just not sure how this is even relevant. I, I don't think there's any evidence that she's an idiot minister. And I, what I think is that the last incident with Optus that it seems to me, I'm on the outside of this, I don't know, I'm just observing. Yep, yep. It seems to me some bad blood was created between Optus and the minister after the hack because the minister felt in the dark and was under a lot of pressure. And so I think, you know, this has been, this is not, uh, there's history to this relationship now. Do you, did, were you able to continue billing people? At Luxury Escapes? That's a really good question. I think we did. We didn't send – we sent an email out every day, so we held that up just because we didn't want people not getting it. Uh, we eventually sent it in the afternoon, uh, but I think we still transacted. So I don't, Are you with Optus? Uh, my, I'm, I'm, my house uh, internet is Optus. I was actually in yep. Bali at the time, so it didn't impact <sighs> okay. me. Um, I was obviously at a trade show, not on holiday. But, uh, yeah, it didn't impact me directly, but obviously impacted – my family and, and obviously people at work, but it didn't impact our work. So our, our work was up. We, we don't use Optus for work, but clearly the triple zero thing, I think what I think what you're right is the triple zero thing was horrific. The train thing was terrible. That's not, well, it is Optus of all indirectly, but how do these systems not have backup? Sure, you'd have Telstra and Optus ability to just toggle on. So I'd blame the train system, not necessarily fully Optus for that. I think they're both at fault. You know who people blame? They blame the government. That's who people blame. And maybe they're right in blaming the government, by the way, but I think that um, that is why Michelle Rowland is sensitive about all of this, and it's probably why the Premier of Victoria is sensitive about it as well with regards to the trains. W what I do feel about all of this is it should be a lesson for Australia that we can't leave our infrastructure in this condition and, and we need to take it more seriously and probably mandate that there has to be switchover to other networks if the network is down, so that everyone was with that was with Optus can go to Telstra and vice versa. But I do feel like there was a need to speak more publicly for this reason. If you were running, let's say, a cafe, and your FPOS is reliant on Optus, and you basically can't charge anyone for a full day's worth of business, except with cash, 
I don't even know what cash is. Like in Australia, I do not use cash. And so that um, business, you know, these are not um, these are not people make millionaires running these cafes. These are people that need a day's profit in order to pay wages, etc. That is a very stressful moment for small business and they want to know what's going on. And that stress and anxiety, like that leads to anger. And somebody needs to come out and say, we don't know what's going on, but don't worry, we haven't forgotten about you and you are important. No one's denying that, 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 that what happened was terrible and that people lost money and that, and that people may have died because of the triple O issue. No one's defending the fact that it happened. We don't know what, exactly how it happened. So, But the pile on, and it's, it's almost effectively bullying, like almost every business commentator just ha- hammered into Kelly for, I don't think, the right reasons. Like if it turns out that she got a she got a knife and cut a cord that turned it off, then fine. But she's just the, the spokesperson for this business. She's not the technical person. She's You can't expect a CEO to understand the technical of a mass, the massive no, network that's built before she started. It's just that I found the pile on just unedifying. It's, no, I agree with that. You can't – these are legacy problems. But ultimately, CEOs get held responsible for things. This is why it's so – this is why CEOs get paid so much money and have such short average tenures. Like what happened to Kelly at Combank was very unfair to her. But also what happened to Ian Nareva at Combank I thought was very unfair. I thought what, going way back what happened to Frank Chikuda when he was running NAB and there was some issue. Like these are issues that the CEO has no visibility across well, I think Frank Chicudo invested, like, lost billions of dollars with dud investments. That probably was his fault. But uh, but that wasn't why he left. He left. I can't remember the particular well, issue, but something went a wrong. a forex trading scandal. Like, there's right. a few things that happened. The CEO of NAB, who does not come from a foreign exchange background, is not going to be familiar. That was, with the, that was straw that broke camel's back. He done right, a bunch but, of stuff. But the point is that a lot of the the reasons that end up killing CEOs, their tenure... They, not only is the CEO not responsible, but it is unreasonable to think they would have even have any visibility over this type of thing. And so I think that is why CEOs get paid a lot of money, one of the reasons. They also work very hard and also they're at the top of a pyramid. And I'm not asking you to be a bleeding heart for CEOs, but I do think that the quid pro quo of getting paid a lot of money is that um, suddenly things beyond your control can result in your a very unedifying demise of your tenure, I think that's that's right. I think that I think CEOs are almost always overpaid, and I think they're also overly held accountable. Stuff that's not their fault. So I kind of totally agree with you on one point, but I think and the reason CEOs overpaid is more because the people who paid them are the board, and they, the board sits with the CEO, and everybody wants to be liked, and then they go to remuneration consultants and they ratchet it up. So it's because there's a there's an agency cost there, and the person paying the CEO is almost usually not the owner of the business in public companies. But it is a competitive market for talent. Like that bit is true. It is a competitive market for talent. And I would say this, there are many more companies that need great leaders than there are great leaders to lead companies. And so the bottom half of CEOs are certainly overpaid because I don't think they're especially capable. But the top half, let's say, they're the ones that everybody wants, especially the top 10 or 15%. And I think there is there is a war for talent for those people. I think the problem is often the people who are paid the most generally aren't the best CEO. People, you're generally paid based on the size of the business, and just because you run a bigger business doesn't mean you're better. Often it's the other way around. So we, that's probably yeah, another that's talk true. show. And let's go on to our second story after another really quick break.
idea. What's your experience been with SEO across all the businesses you've worked with? Well, I actually had an agency that did SEO at one point in time. And so through that, I, I was not the SEO guy. And through that, I got some insight into just how complicated and sophisticated SEO is. And since then, I've tried a variety of different people and solutions. And it's a bit of a mix and match for me. I don't have a very sharp answer for you on that. We're the same. We, I reckon we've cycled through a dozen agencies before we discovered Portal Ventures. And these guys are the real deal. We actually use them at Luxury Escapes and our SEO traffic has jumped dramatically. We also use them at a business called Bookwell, which I used to chair. And the SEO there was so good, we actually were able to sell the business to the global leader, almost purely based on how much organic traffic we had from SEO. The guys at Portal Ventures work with some of the best Australian marketplaces and e-commerce businesses, including Flipper, Programmer, Mad Paws, Camplify, and Autoguru. These guys are literally the best of the best. Exclusive to Contrarians listeners, the team at Portal will give you a free one-hour consultation if you mention Contrarians. To get in touch with Mike and the team, call them on 1300 121 261 or go to www.portal.ventures. For our third story, we have the incredible rise and even greater fall of one-time fake billionaire, Sam Bankman-Fried, who last week was found guilty of fraud and money laundering in a US court and now faces up to 110 years in prison. A jury took just a few hours to convict the FTX founder, and it came after a bizarre trial, which included three of Bankman-Fried's senior executives testifying against him, including former girlfriend, Carolyn Ellison. During the trial, it was revealed that Bankman-Fried, who betrayed himself as a leader of the effective altruism movement, lived in a $35 million Bermuda penthouse and once considered paying Donald Trump hundreds of millions of dollars not to run for president. FTX was once valued at more than US $30 billion and boasted blue-chip investors like Sequoia Capital, Toma Bravo and Third Point. The business spectacularly collapsed in November 2022 and it was quickly revealed that FTX was little more than a Ponzi scheme used by Bankman Freed as a money pit to fund rampant speculation by his hedge fund, Almeida Research. Adir was just a stun here. How messy. This is messy. This is very messy. Remember I told you when we were talking about, I can't remember who we were talking about. Oh, it was Adam Newman, the WeWork founder. And I said, when you're surrounded by sycophants as a billionaire, it's pretty easy to lose touch with reality. I think this also happened to Sam Bankman-Fried. I, you're going to disagree with my view on this. He probably is going to get legally what he deserves to get. Like it didn't take a jury very long to convict him. So I think that is what you, you, you hope a jury can make a quick decision one way or the other in a trial because it means it seems pretty straightforward to them. I actually feel pretty sorry for him. I really don't think he set out to defraud anyone. I think there was money flying everywhere. He made some pretty dumb decisions. He was surrounded by just these this huge ocean of money and his dumb decisions were to treat it like it was his own money effectively and not the money of investors. And so that's that's a crime and you, you, you need to do time for that, I think. But I really feel like he set out to try and do something that he thought was cool and build a business and he ended up, you know, one step after the next going down this 
disastrous road, and I, I, I'm quite, I, I feel quite sorry for him. I feel quite sorry for him. I think if he could, obviously, if he could wind back the clock and not live any of this life. So I don't know. I don't know if that's justice or not justice. Like I, nothing about Sam. I don't think it's Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff. I don't know if he started off doing a Ponzi scheme, but he very knowingly built a Ponzi scheme that had to collapse at some point in time. And he knowingly was taking people's money, understanding that he was actually not offering them any prospect of, you know, some successful investment. I just feel like I'm not sure if justice is necessarily served by Sam Bankman for it sitting in a prison. I agree with that about 10%. I think <laughs> that's actually 10% more than I was expecting. The, I think the only bit I kind of agree, I think if he goes to jail for more than sort of 30 years, that's probably. 30 years? Well, Madoff was, I think, sentenced to like 60 or 70 years. And. He's better off killing five well, people. That's, and I think that's probably – that was the point. I think if – I don't think there's any chance he gets less than 20. I think that's probably the minimum. I think 110 is clearly not going to happen. But, like, yeah, I agree murders and rape and all that kind of stuff's worse. And that's where I think – What do you think he did wrong here? What do you, let's, well, like, what was his actual crime? Well, that's, that's, uh, Stealing I think, billions of dollars off billionaires. Well, no, because he, that's not what happened. He, yes, the likes of Sequoia lost – their investment. That's not that's not the real crime here. The real crime here was he took investors' money. So he was FTX was caught like a, a bank in many ways. It wasn't a bank, but it was, oh, that's true. And, and I'll people, take that back. You're right. Innocent you're right. young young investors, poor, rich, not not just rich people. It was people who didn't have a lot of money who put their money. Like I don't have a huge amount of sympathy for crypto traders who lost money, but I have it a little bit. And I think if you, in good faith, no, put your money in the enough. bank, and the person who owns the bank gambles that money at the casino and loses which is essentially what he did. Uh, and at the same time, I'd also have more sympathy for him if he was living a frugal lifestyle and claiming to be this altruist, but he was living in a $35 million house. They were spending millions of dollars on all this stuff. Remember that the dad got tens of millions of dollars, but the dad's some dude got a lawyer from Stanford and the mum's a lawyer. The dad seems in, in and up to his neck. But I think all these, um, all these virtue signalers, they're all hypocrites. Like the fact that he is a hypocrite – <laughs> is not at all surprising to me. In fact, I would be much more shocked if he lived by the virtues that he was espousing. So that that shocks me no percent. I think he's a he's a noxious individual. I think he's despicable. I don't think he should get more than twenty years. I think that any more than that is is probably too much. And I think he probably does get a little more than that. So I think it's he, he is. And then this is a guy who took money. They knew exactly. There was a point, and Madoffs obviously went for a lot longer. But there was a point where. Bankman-Fried knew he wasn't going to recover and he kept gambling and he kept taking money. Remember, they, they basically had a, a secret switch that allowed Almeida, his hedge fund, to have unlimited margin, yeah. essentially. So he was taking unlimited money from from customers. Uh, ironically, uh, what was the business? And was effectively losing it, right? Like basically what was happening is Almeida was um, generating huge losses, is that right? And he was effectively covering it with in, investor money inside the FTX business. Is that basically what happened? That's exactly what happened. That's what I understand. What I didn't understand, maybe I didn't understand this part of it, but I didn't realize that all of the, the crypto investors that were using FTX as their trading platform and had money in the, the their accounts are, are getting basically zero cents in the dollar. Is that the outcome for them? Oh, that, ironically, uh, and this is the, probably the, the strange part of it all, uh, Bank Madrid actually made an investment in a business called Anthropic, an AI business. And uh, Anthropic just did a raise recently. And it's quite possible that because Anthropic's done so well from a valuation, uh, who knows what will happen in the future. But I think they've like, I think Bank Madrid invested $500 million of this 
hedge fund money in, in this anthropic business. And I think it's worth well in the billions now, three or four, at least three or four billion, potentially more. So ironically, it, it might get close to a hundred cents of the dollar back. So What's it, it going to do though? Do an in-specie distribution of anthropic shares. So everyone that gave money to FTX, instead of getting their crypto back, is going to end up with shares in anthropic. Is that what's going to happen? No, presumably they sell. It's, it's obviously the administrator. It's who's, well, the guy, you know, I'm, I'm, what will happen is the guy who's effectively the liquidator or the administrator of whatever they call it uh, in chapter, I think chapter 7 or chapter 11 of of uh, FTX, I think his name's John Ray, who actually did the Enron bankruptcy yeah. as well. He'll try and get as much money as he can and he'll give it to all the creditors of which the creditors are the depositors. The, the, I doubt the shareholders, well, the shareholders won't get anything. They'll, they'll be written off. But the, all the creditors, so the people who lent money and the investors will get something back. And you can actually buy... FTX claims now. They were trading as low as, I think, 20 cents a dollar. I think they are oh, right. a lot more expensive now. So people will get a chunk of money back due to this anthropic thing. And they've also, there's a lot of what's called shit coins. So FTX had their own coin. I think it was FTT, it was called, which is, that was like the real Ponzi was running. It was basically created his own coin that was based on the Bay of FTX. So as soon as FTX went down, that coin was worth nothing. So it was a classic Ponzi scheme. So he was running a, he wasn't a good guy. Uh, he wasn't an unlucky guy. He was a, he was a criminal. Let's not make no mistake. But I think where we agree on is he wasn't a mass murderer. So I think he became a, a criminal. When you say he was a criminal, you're not. Well, you're not such, everybody become a criminal. Like everybody well, becomes no, a criminal at some point. Nobody's born I a criminal. Know. All right. Maybe a better way of saying it is there are people. I'm going to use a very basic example. There are people that put on a balaclava and dark clothing. And you know, it's pretty stereotypical, ski mask or something, and they roll up to a house and their objective is to break into that house and steal what's inside that house. It's not like they were just going to go and drive through Mecca's and then on the way they thought, you know what, we're already wearing these dark clothes. Why don't we go and roll up to a house and break in and steal some stuff? Like, it's, And so I think Sam Bankman-Fried, his intention was not to create a Ponzi scheme. He thought that he could jump on the. He thought he had this. It seems like he seems like he's a very smart guy who couldn't possibly as, be as smart as he thought he was, and tried to build this business around crypto. And that's what he thought he was going to do. And at some point, he makes the switch to decide to engage in criminal activity. And whether it was a moment or whether it was just a slow bleed across, I don't know. But you're not suggesting he set this up with the intention of... No, no. I, but I think you've described every white-collar criminal. I think you've described Elizabeth Holmes. I don't think Elizabeth Holmes, when she, when she was 19 and started doing this blood thing, thought she was going to create a fraudulent business that almost killed people with fake diagnosis. I, I think white-collar crime essentially is almost always a slow burn in some way. And this is just typical of that. I don't think Madoff... I don't think Bernie Madoff set out to rip people off. I think he just had a few bad years and started lying and to cover up so maybe what i would say is this it seems to me from this discussion because it's like an interesting thing to think about like when does the white collar founder become the white collar criminal it seems to me there's this moment in all three of those things that we've just talked about elizabeth holmes made off bankman freed where they had this moment this decision to make do i go broke or do I do this other thing that might be criminal? And all three of them at some point decided to take the second, like the you know, the second road in the fork, and they went down this criminal path. Because Elizabeth Holmes, she basically lied about uh, like a whole lot of health-related 
test results and absolutely and to me that that's actually yeah. the worst of all of it because that's people's health but i and so she should have just made the decision which was i tried really hard this has not gone the way that i thought it's gone how do i um how do i just come clean on that and just accept where that's going to lead me to and i think maybe the lesson that <laughs> like i would take out of this and the lesson that founders should take out of this is that you know, we all try our hardest. We all put our blood, sweat and tears into building a business. But often it's just it's not going to work. And at some point in time, you just have to say, the lesser of two evils is just accepting that it's failed and going down that road. Because this other road of criminality that leads to very bad and dark places and ultimately prison and ultimately, you know, you're right. It is a, it is a, I mean, you basically hardened my view on Bankman Fred in the course of this conversation like it is true like he basically delivered a lot of stress and a lot of sadness to regular people who trusted him for for their investments in crypto and I think that that moment exists for all of them but by the way Elon Musk I'm not suggesting he's done anything criminal but Elon Musk has stared over the edge of the precipice at many times in his life and he just somehow managed to hang on by the skin of his teeth. He didn't have to I – mean, I mean, like the what, – what's, what's the name of ASIC in the US again? The SEC. The SEC. So the SEC thinks he did criminal stuff, right? He's, they thought his tweets were criminal. or I'm not sure if it was criminal, but, you know, he, he had to step down as it chairman. Ci- it was civil, that. but yeah. It was civil, okay. And so, you know, they, they were not very happy with him. But he never crossed the line into criminal activity and somehow he managed to keep it all alive. But God – he came very close to going broke many times with that Tesla business. I think uh, what you say actually rings true. Often there is, I think most founders have a, a, a stare in the, in the, a death stare moment where it could go one of each way. Almost every founder has it. We've almost had it. Uh, most people have come across it at some point. And often, and I think you're, I think you're right, is the difference between criminality and being a, a hero and a billionaire can be, one or two right decisions can be luck, can be – so there's a lot of – I call it luck. Oh, it's luck. It's luck. Everything's luck. But in terms of that specific decision yeah. and that specific decision point, it could be bad luck that, that turns it wrong. And there's no doubt there's plenty of billionaires who could have ended up like Bernie Madoff and Bankman Fried and, and Holmes if something had gone not their way at a specific time. And Musk is a great example of that. But ultimately, when you do the wrong thing, as Bankman Fried has done, I'm not sure that that's an excuse because he, he – that's what happened and people lost money and, and I don't think you can use that as an excuse. The question is, in terms of punishing these people, I don't have an answer to this. Uh, it's actually, I haven't really thought very deeply about this at all. How should these people be punished? Because when you send a murderer to prison, you know, I mean, there are, there are various, um, there are various purposes Deterrent. for prison, right? Like there's definitely a retribution aspect to prison, there's a deterrence aspect, there's a rehabilitation aspect, and so and um, there's also a keep the community safe aspect. And so you, I want murderers in prison because I don't want them to kill more people. That's a great reason to put murderers in prison. And the question is, like, what's the main reason for putting Bankman Fried in prison for an extended period of time? Is it yeah. retribution? It's not rehabilitation. He doesn't need to be rehabilitated, right? Yeah. Like, uh, and, and even if he does... Prison is not going to be rehabilitating him. So, so is it retribution? Absolutely. Like people just want to 
punish him for what he did? Is it deterrence for other people? I guess so. I think it's mostly retribution but in this case. But do you think – I don't think yeah. I, I think you're probably, it's I an think, effective deter- – probably It's retribution, right? Is, is working in community service for his whole life potentially a better result? Um, I, I'm not – yeah, I'm not sure. You're right. It's clearly a, a retribution. There's no there's no community safety aspect to this. No one's going to give him – I would have thought no one's going to give him money. And that said, Adam Newman got money again. So so who yeah. knows? Well, Adam Newman didn't um, didn't commit crimes. Like, he wasn't convicted of committing crimes. Well, that's a great – another great example. He didn't commit crimes, but he lost people a lot of money. But he lost investors' uh, but they were money. Sophisticated. Yeah, but he lost sophisticated okay. investors a lot of money. That's part of VC. It's venture well, investing. But, but – that, that can also be a crime if you mislead a message, et cetera. But, but yeah, uh, uh, you obviously feel a lot less – you don't feel bad if Masayoshi-san you, you loses money because he's a billionaire and so he's meant to be sophisticated. He's I don't not feel bad if any VC uh, loses money. And I'm not saying that because I don't like VCs. I do like yeah. them, but that's their business model. Yeah. No, but oh, you also can't defraud uh, somebody. I agree. You can't say my business is worth – you can't produce a balance sheet that's fraud, which actually Bankman Free did, but you can't lie to people. And that's what yes. – remember the guy – the guy who did the fire festival, yeah, that yeah, guy, yeah. Uh, the yeah. famous festival. He didn't go down for the fire. He went down for misleading investors on some something else. He he went to jail for that, not because he served dodgy sandwiches at the fire festival. That was that was completely different. So yeah, it absolutely is a crime to mislead investors. But I agree that obviously the community impact is a lot more if you're taking money off individuals. But Bankman Freed's incarceration, even for twenty years, I don't think has a deterrent effect. And the reason I say that, you know, because. The moment that people are in this position where they've worked for – like because you're a founder and so you know there is a substantial percentage of your sense of self-worth that is linked to the success of luxury escapes. That is who, a big part of who you are. And so Bankman-Fried, mm. presumably FTX, was almost all of his sense of self-worth by the looks of things. And that moment where you make the decision to go down the wrong road or just accept your fate like the legal fate, which is I, my business is broke, I'm not sure that incarcerating somebody for 20 years changes an individual's decision at that moment. I think that decision is about who they are as a person. I can tell you for me, there is no possibility that I would ever go and engage in criminal activity at that moment in time. One is I don't think it's right, but two is like I'm terrified of going to prison. Like I can't think of anything worse than going to prison. That, that to me is like the worst possible outcome. And so, yeah, I think it's got no deterrence effect, personally. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think we agree on most of those points. So let's move on to our final story on Blue Apron. Adi, I imagine you're a big-time property investor? I'm the opposite to a big-time property investor. I know how to grow businesses. I'm good with startups. I'm good with growth businesses. I can buy listed equities. I can invest in funds. But um, I'm definitely not very sophisticated when it comes to property investment, I regret to inform you. I hear you. There's only so many things you can be expert in. And most people who invest in property are really flying blind. That's where performance property comes into it. They're a high-end property advisory firm who work with some of Australia's smartest investors. Performance Property will help you strategically grow your portfolio, utilize data sets, and make sure you're not overpaying. They even conduct detailed due diligence and even help with existing assets. They essentially make buying property as easy as buying a BHP share. If you've got more than $500,000 in equity to invest and are looking to build a multi-million dollar portfolio, give Performance Property a call on 03-8539-0300 or visit their website at performanceproperty.com.au. 
And for our final story, we have the rise and fall of US food delivery business Blue Apron. Blue Apron was one of the original meal businesses based out of New York, which listed on the New York Stock Exchange back in 2017 at a valuation of almost $2 billion. Just over a month ago, Blue Apron was sold to a startup called Wonder Group for $103 million. Currently, German-based giant HelloFresh has a dominant 78% market share and is valued at more than Euro $5 billion and has been profitable for more than five years. There's also an Australian business called My Muscle Chef, which was founded by brothers Tushar and Nishant Menon back in 2013. My Muscle Chef has been one of Australia's best success stories in a very difficult sector. It has grown revenues to more than $220 million, with leading private equity firm Quadrant investing $100 million back in 2020, giving the business a $200 million valuation. Are you a meal kit fan? I'm not sure there's a bunch of HelloFresh boxes just in the background there. (laughs) I have never ordered one of these meal kits. I will say this. Do you know who Rolf Weber is? Of course, Rolf. We bought a business from, well, indirectly from Rolf. He was a... He runs Sydney Digisit with Dan, so know him very well. Great guy. So he he obviously runs Marley Spoon in Australia, and he is a listener to the podcast. And now I know why. It's because of your relationship with him. He's also a it member could of be a yours. fantastic. I have no relationship with him except I sit except I sat next to him at a Digisit event a few couple of years ago. So um, so we, that's why we have to mention Marley Spoon so that we can get him a bit of a plug in there. He's so, ASX listed. ASX listed. Actually, it's the, it's a very weird ASX listed business. I know that this is not the topic that you wanted to necessarily talk about, but I'm going to digress for a second and talk about this because I think it's going to be very interesting to people. So when you usually buy a share on the Australian Stock Exchange, what you're buying is a piece of the company itself. That's what you own. But when you buy a share of Marley Spoon on the Australian Stock Exchange, you're not actually buying a piece of Marley Spoon. You're buying a receipt that entitles you to a piece of Marley Spoon because Marley Spoon is actually German-based. Is that right? And so... So it's like an, a, it's like an ADR. A, yeah. My good friend Dougs does that at uh, Bank of New York. Right. So what's that? An, an Australian depository receipt, depository receipt? Yeah, so he does it with Australian companies who want a US listing. So that's, he sort of takes, takes them there and gets some US investors, essentially. And so it's a way of listing on an exchange, which is not your home exchange. Exactly. Without having to break pieces of your company up and put those pieces as shares on the exchange you basically say and it's not a, it's not a weird dual listing thing that bhp used to have yeah. uh which is two like two different shares on market which is ridiculous no it's uh, a, this is effectively a entitlement to the company and if they pay if they were to pay dividends then that would flow down to these things it's quite technical but i think it's it's just interesting because you know i always say to you like um finance just gets more and more and more sophisticated and at some point somebody said how do we get a company that's in a different country to list on another exchange and there's all sorts of complexities and someone just came up with this idea that says, why don't we just create something synthetic and list that and that's going to simplify the whole process and now like it's semi-common, right? So um, so that's that. Um, I've never bought any of these boxes. This whole industry I find tremendously interesting. I never would have expected that it would be a winner-takes-all market did you think this would be a winner takes all market? I would have thought winner takes most of the league. It really is a seventy percent. It's really a business of scale. If you and I think if you, I don't think you said you haven't got the. I used to get HelloFresh and Marley Spoon for a period. Um, I think that's the only two I've got. I thought they're actually pretty good. Like we stopped getting it. 
uh, I think because we became vegetarian, it became a little bit hard. But um, I thought the I think the idea is really, it's really good because you get very little wastage. So they basically send you all the different components of a meal, and it's quite technical. So instead of having to buy mm. some random herb, when you spend six bucks for a herb and use like a tenth of it, they give you just the tenth of the herb. So it's a really smart idea. But isn't pa- isn't it packaging intensive? Like it's all very heavily packaged. Oh, I don't recall it being outrageously heavily packaged. I think that there can be an element of heavy packaging, but I don't think that's. I wasn't offended by the level of packaging because everything has packaging. But I think it's a, I think it's a great idea for lack of waste. It's, just, it's good if you're just two adults. I think it's really good if you're sort of semi time poor. If you're not a good cook as well, I think it's really good. Um, I didn't know you were a vegetarian. I tried to become a pescatarian and I went quite well. And I just did it for, for ethical reasons, yep. yeah, which yep. is which was surprised people a bit. Not, I mean, not because they thought I was unethical, but like because I just didn't. <laughs> Sam Backman, I just didn't talk to anyone. I didn't talk to anyone about it, right? Yeah, like because you know, you know that joke of how, like, how do you know, how do you know if someone's a vegan? Well, they tell they you, tell you, yeah, you know, that joke, yeah. So, but I just never told anyone. And then COVID came, and I was like, <laughs> God, I need a burger. It was I found the lockdown so depressing. <laughs> and so, how was, long were you a pescatarian for? Uh, a few, maybe two, two or three years. Oh, my, that's, a, that's a long time. Yeah, my cousin in Sydney. <laughs> I was going to say like two weeks. No, <laughs> no, my cousin in Sydney's name is Rob Marchenberg. He like um, he uh, he's involved in a business that I'm involved in called Quali. And yeah, he, I, met, I met him. I met those guys. Oh yeah, yeah Ainsley met, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. And so he kind of uh, it was. I found him inspirational in like doing that because he did it for ethical reasons. And yep. I was going quite well with it. I couldn't do the whole vegetarian thing because I just I felt like I needed some fish. And um, yep. my theory on fish, by the way, is that people are pescatarians because you can't hear fish like making noises. Yeah, so that's, that's my true. theory on it. Anyway, then I, it just got to um, it got to, and I wasn't strictly pescatarian. Like if I went to New York, and like, there were times <laughs> that were like there's the burgers are so. so good if you're a deli, man. yeah, yeah. That's if right. you're a cat's deli, but like, I just. My, but then when it was lockdown, I'm like. You know, the mental overhead is so extreme with this lockdown. Like, I can't maintain the pescatarian mental overhead at the same time. I just, I gave up. And so I'm slowly getting it back. But it's. I think I was the reverse. I think I actually became vegetarian just as lockdown started in early 2020. My, my wife became pretty much vegan in 2019. And we both were very big meat eaters. And she did it purely for ethical reasons, uh, for, for both environmental and, and animal reasons. And I was. I think most people are pretty sympathetic to that, but I think like most people, you sort of rationalise that if I don't eat meat, it's not going to save any cows because my meat consumption isn't enough to save any cows. But I think it's 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 a really nice. But that's not what ethics is about, right? Ethics is not about am I going to save cows. It's about what do I want to be a part of. That's what ethics is about. Yeah, no, I think you're right. But that wasn't the reason I necessarily did it. But it was it's a really nice side effect. But I did. I watched Game Changers on Netflix. I'm like, Have you watched Game Changers? The Netflix doco Arnold Schwarzenegger and no. Well, after I, this, I, after I, record you, I, this, watch, I only pay for watch, streaming. I don't you, watch it. Use the seventeen bucks a month no. you pay for Netflix and never use. And um, it's watch Game Changers. It was made by Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Lewis Hamilton. It's really good. Uh, so I was, I didn't think I'd last as a vegetarian. So that basically says you become vegetarian for for athletic reasons. You perform better. And I actually find I've been much lighter, run, run faster. Um, I never feel full. I never generally feel healthier. And the fact that I can drive past the truck with animals in there and not feel guilty is, is a really nice sort of benefit. But mm. my wife was certainly the leader of that. I started off not eating baby animals. Yeah, like lamb. That, and Yeah, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. And yeah, like, and veal. Yeah, and then it kind of s- snowballed. 
people said to me, oh, do, do you feel really different, like physically? And I, I was like, no, nah, I don't feel different at all physically. It made no difference to me. Oh, I do. I do feel different physically, 100%. Uh, I feel like uh, But that's back to the meal kits, I think. <laughs> so they're no vegetarian meal. Oh, no, there are. There are. It's just... Oh, can I just say one more thing about this vegan? Because we're talking about this topic. So okay. uh, like people's, people say to me, oh, I like when you digress <laughs> with good news because there's no option. Yeah. That's all I can but, do. 90% of this show is so, digression, I reckon. <laughs> so I sort of say this thing about... My one issue with no, – I don't mean specifically veganism, but I mean this idea of um, not killing animals and, be, and select, I'm going to call it selectivism of which animals you care about. I don't know if that's a word, but that's my word. Um, and like I do pescatarian, it means I don't care about fish, but I don't eat cows. Um, the thing is, you know, when they um, like when they grow grain – because people, people vegans say I don't like the way cows are treated, so I don't want to drink the milk or the chickens, I don't want to have the eggs, right? But, you know, when they grow grain, you know that – you know that um, rodents, they love grain, love grain, like little rodents, mice, rats. What they're into is human-grown grain. And in order to make sure that that grain does not get eaten by those rodents, they just murder them all. All of them. This is a mass slaughter of rodents. <laughs> and no one I've ever heard says, I don't eat bread because I don't like that they kill all the rodents to grow the thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm yeah. not being critical about it. What I'm more saying is… Because you've got to eat something, but yeah. There's… There's these simple, there's these simpler, more obvious levels of things, but life is complex, and there is complexity in these things. And so, I think people that make choices for ethical reasons and keep them to themselves, like I'm very in favour of that. But I do think life is more complicated and sophisticated than like this, like simple sound bites. As for meal kits, you're right about scale. Like that didn't occur to me. But the only way this business works is if it's not more expensive to buy the produce from them than it is from a supermarket, right? And that's why you need scale. You pay a bit for convenience as well. It's a bit like you're going on a, a tour when you're overseas. You always pay a bit for the tour guide. It's a bit the same. So you, you pay a bit for the fact that everything's there and ready. You don't have to go shopping. It gets delivered. That's worth something. But I think you're broadly right. If you can get the cost of a meal below the cost of the produce, it becomes almost a no-brainer. Uh, for a lot of people. And that's why I think HelloFresh Hello Fresh is a very profitable business. They're not profitable. They're profitable. HelloFresh Hello Fresh is profitable. I thought they're loss-making. So HelloFresh have this weird, they use adjusted core profit, so EBITDA, whatever that is, between, it's almost about a billion Australian. So whatever, I'm, I'm sure that is a slightly debauched profit number, but they definitely are profitable. What about their cash? So HelloFresh have net operating cash flow of, 300 million euros, uh, and that's actually down year on year. So that was in 2022, uh, and they have – they're absolutely profitable. Okay, so uh, they are generating a, free cash. I think they're profitable on a net basis potentially even as well. Okay. So it's a genuine business that makes genuine cash. And their revenue line is some enormous number of billions of dollars, isn't it, is my recollection of it? Yeah, I think they, that's oh, – they were – in 2022, they were $7.6 So So I think that's euros. So that'd be – Australian, we're probably heading towards what 14, 13, 14 billion Australian revenue. So genuine big business. But think about this as think about this as a business. That's a huge business. So I've got. So I want to tell you all of my. I want to tell you all of my problems with this industry. And by the way, HelloFresh is also because they just gobbled up a whole lot of other businesses. Like they've been on a massive consolidation spree yeah, over an yeah. extended and period of They're big time. in the US, they're big in Europe, obviously in Australia. This is my problem with these businesses. And it's illustrated by what I'm about to say to do with the numbers that you've just said. But I'll speak more broadly. So in order, this company needs to go and generate seven or eight billion euros of revenue – 
in order to keep three hundred million dollars, three hundred million euros of cash. I they've mean, had more cash. I think their cash dropped off a little bit, but they've had they're up to six hundred million cash some right. years. But yeah, we'll even say six hundred million sub ten percent cash margin. And so, to me, like a business at scale that is doing a sub ten percent cash margin, that might be typical for grocery type businesses. But I don't love those businesses, and the and the reason that I don't like this particular industry, especially, although I probably like HelloFresh because they won and they've they've kind of killed everyone else, but the problem with this industry is you've got these relatively thin gross margins on the groceries. Okay, they've got a bit of an additional fee because of delivery but and convenience, but they're eating a chunk of that by actually having to send it out to you. So that's going to eat a chunk of that. But, you know, supermarkets, what are they doing? 25 30% gross margins, right, on, on groceries. And so there's not very high gross margins. I'm not interested in running a business with 25 or 30% gross margins. I'll steer clear of that business. And then you've got this issue, which is their acquisition costs. And the problem yeah, with I was these, about to say that. The, you, yeah, I, I stole your thunder. The pro, because <laughs> the problem with these businesses is, like, they give away all this, like, ultra cheap or free trial, and basically yeah. nobody continues after that ends because it's too expensive. The big problem, the big actual problem is it's part acquisition cost, but really churn is the big issue. That The churn on this business is, like, out of control. I think it's... I, this stat's probably wrong, but it, someone told me like 90% churn. Like the churn is off the charts. It's it's unlike, I think that's like annual or something like that, but it, maybe it's less now. But Over what? And when you say churn, do you mean? Well, I'm sure Ralph can correct me, but I, I remember it being a huge churn. Maybe HelloFresh is a bit lower, but it was a massive churn. And, and part of the reason you say is, remember every parcel you ever got had a HelloFresh um, discount voucher in it. So no one ever paid for it. So That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me that 90% of their customers would leave so I thought that was a huge mistake, that marketing strategy, because we spoke previously about pricing sends a message about worth to the customer. And you basically say to a customer, we're going to make the first two deliveries $20 or $10, whatever it is. I don't even know what the pricing is, but some very low price. And so what you've effectively communicated to them is the perceived value of what you're getting here is a very low price. Now, they may understand it's not as low a price as they're getting for the two boxes, but they certainly don't think it's five times the price they're getting for the first two boxes. And I think anchoring customers down at that level is just a recipe for churn at the end of the trial period. I think these businesses would have been much more competitive if they would have just said, we're going to give you a 20% discount if you sign up to an annual subscription to this box or something like that or give them some discount to overcome the churn i I think they were fundamentally flawed in their approach to customer acquisition is my view you're right in theory i think where you're wrong in practice is that the concept was really started and perfected by hellofresh and hellofresh use it to win so hellofresh use it to get scale and then destroy everyone else everyone else is basically being roadkill for hellofresh which is now a five billion australian dollar business so HelloFresh used this strategy to win. It's like called the Amazon strategy in a way, to, to lose money, lose money, lose money, kill everyone, then start making money. And once you run to Monopoly, I, I hate the strategy. I think you're, you're right in theory, but I think in practice here it worked, but it shouldn't have. Yeah, but it only it worked for one of them. And yeah, like, it worked for one of them. Who but knows but what, HelloFresh are the ones that did it. 
Oh, I see. They're the ones who started oh, it all. Everyone else copied them. And so the question is, why had, did Woolworths and Coles not buy one of these companies? Uh, Woolworths invested in Marley Spoon actually at one point, and they sold out. Oh, did they? And then, okay. And they had a big run up, and they sold out, and obviously dropped off a bit. Is this kind of business not big enough to move the needle for Woolworths and Coles? I think that's the issue. I think that's the issue. Even if you think, even if like my, my Muscle Chef's done really well, it's a really good. It's a bit different. It's, that's they have pre-prepared meals where. It, Prepackaged versus a meal kit, so quite different. I think the prepackaged blue apron, blue apron, which we talked about, was prepackaged meals. And I remember I was in, at a Goldman Sachs conference in San Fran in about two thousand and just around the time it listed, two thousand sixteen, seventeen. And they were talking there, and I'm thinking this business is okay, but they obviously just could never quite get it right. But at that conference, it's an interesting story. I was, I remember I was sitting. We were so the comp, it was like a three day conference. This is, this is pretty much peak when all these businesses were like fly. I remember Scott Barker at Lassian presented. They're still flying, obviously, but Uber was flying. All these businesses were like really going well back then. This was sort of boom time. San Fran, absolute boom time, San Francisco. And Goldman's were in the thick of it. And I was at this conference and it was like the end of day one or day two. And I was speaking to, we just went to some weird, it was kind of a bar, maybe it was a cafe, just right near where the conference was. And I was speaking to a couple of Goldman's guys and there was a couple of other people there uh, I think it was um, the guy from Highpage, actually. Dave from Highpage was there, obviously, company you're involved with now. Um, and Dave's a great guy. And <laughs> well, I think I was speaking to Dave at the time and one of the Goldies guys. And I looked across. There was a guy sort of at the table, but not sitting with us, but kind of at the table. And he looked like a skater. He had like stickers on his computer and he had like, he was dressed like a full-on skateboarder guy. And I said to the Goldman's guy, is that Patrick Grove? And he goes, I don't know. And I've gone, Patrick? He's looked up. It was Patrick Grove, the Australian billionaire entrepreneur. Who's, who's a, who's a, that was the first time I met him. He's a really good guy. Uh, he had a bunch of business. He had the Netflix of Asia uh, that uh, was going really well, but didn't quite make it. But he sold a business to to one of the had a bit uh, the, the REA of Asia. He's had a bunch of them and done really well. Uh, but I'm thinking that guy looks like That's Patrick right. Grove, but a skater, and it was Patrick Grove. And so tell me about this Blue Apron. So they, how much money did they raise? Well, they, were, they listed at $2 billion. I think over the journey they raised quite a bit. It's never got the model right, never got scale. But they raised hundreds um, of millions of dollars in venture yeah, funds. Yeah, well, easily, easily. And, and they listed as well, so presumably raised some money at listing. And they listed at $2 billion and sold for 100 So that was a business just, just never found product market fit. They tried changing the model a few times. And they have the – and it's a great, great credit to my muscle chef uh, who have managed to make that work – the blue and blue open in the US. You think Australia doesn't have scale? The US, you're not going to get it to work in Australia if it doesn't work in the US. The My Muscle Chef guys have got it to work. So what a great Aussie success story those guys are. They've got a niche My Muscle Chef, which is their meals are, are high protein meals. Yeah, yeah, but still, that was but that's part of the. It's just a great idea, well executed. I'm not being dismiss. I'm not being dismissive. What I'm I'm being the opposite, yeah. which is, I think finding a niche to appeal to is often much better, especially when you're in a market that there's some real gorillas in the market, or one in particular, finding a niche where you can just outperform that gorilla in that niche because maybe the niche is not big enough for the gorilla. Like, that is a great way to start a business that competes in a space that is already dominated by a player. But, you know, I'm trying to think about what the moral of the story is for this kind of blue apron situation. And But maybe the moral of the story is this. Like, there are some industries that look like they're going to be very big, but it might be a winner-takes-most-of-the-market thing. And so you get these companies that have a go and compete aggressively and they all raise lots of money and they all fight and they spend the money to try and win. And one of them is going to win. And who wins is often quite unpredictable at the outset, who's going to win. 
And so you just have to do your best. And sometimes it's you and often it's not going to be you. And that's why you often see VCs invest in multiple companies. They have a thesis about an industry and then they just try and figure out ways to invest in multiple companies if they can do it because they don't know who's going to win the space. And I don't think there's any moral of the story for Blue Apron. Like they tried their hardest. They had a go. I mean, my the real moral for this is the thing I, I always say, which is no valuation is real yeah. unless somebody is putting money in their pocket. They may have, yeah. And I don't know if the hopefully the Blue Apron founders put some money in their pocket, but all of these billion dollar valuations mm-hmm. where all of the money is just going into the company yeah. and the investors are getting preference shares and whatever, those valuations are not real valuations until one day somebody pockets some cash. I couldn't agree more. I think that the other moral, and I've talked about this a lot, is if you don't have a competitive advantage, then ultimately you have no business at, at some point. And you can argue, what was HelloFresh as a competitive advantage? Well, they were clearly the biggest and they got to scale before everyone else. And once you get to scale well before everyone else, that's that's an advantage. But you call that, you call that I mean, that's not your term, but you refer to that as capital as a competitive advantage, which is we're just going to burn so much money hoping that we cross this line of scale where it starts coming back to us in much larger quantities once we reach like the inflection point. It's not just capital because you can have lots of capital and still stuff it up, we work style. It's capital executing really well and moving fast. And that's what the rocket guys are really good at. And they've done it a number of times across a number of different businesses. If you look, Uber was similar. Uber was, look at any business that sort of SoftBank came into or some of the big VCs came into, they do use that capital as a competitive advantage. But it, and as much as we like to think it doesn't work, because often it doesn't, sometimes it does. And sometimes if you get to scale quickly, you can use your scale to crush competitors. Uber has done that. HelloFresh has done that. Uh, it happens all the time. So maybe there is a, a an unfortunate moral there. Well, Uber's done that, but Uber Uber hasn't made back its investment. No, but it is, it is worth $80 billion at the moment. Well, it's valued at $80 billion, and you can sell so, your shares at that. So that means you can get out of your investment. Right. Well, a lot of people have made money. Uber hasn't raised $80 billion. Uber's raised, I don't know, 10 or $12 billion. So it's certainly made back its capital on that basis. It's made back its capital, but is it ever going to make back the 12, 10 or $12 billion that it raised in cash? I think it will. It's profitable now. I think, I think it absolutely will. Uh, you, know, I've got, you know, my thoughts on Uber aren't always positive. I think as a business, and then obviously you've got the self-driving cars potential at some point, but even now as a business, I think the Uber Eats – Clearly, the Uber Eats uh, idea and execution has saved Uber. I'm not sure Uber Ride itself would have survived, but when you layer on Uber Eats, yeah. uh, and there's some other stuff as well, I think the, the freight delivery stuff, the delivery, stuff. there's enough, a few other bows in that quiver, but certainly Uber Eats is probably a better business now than Uber Ride, and that saved the business. HelloFresh also, HelloFresh also as well as Rocket, had upfront ventures, which is Mark Suster, who is... A, a fantastic guy and so forth coming in LA. He's like the kind of one of the original VCs of LA and is a, a great guy. He writes a blog called Both Sides of the Table, which I'd highly recommend to people. And Excel was in 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 HelloFresh as well. So it had some it had some um, it had some good investors. But you know the other yeah, business that some good backers because it's not just like these tech businesses. Like it's a bit of a weird concept, these tech businesses, and people talk about certain businesses being tech businesses and other businesses being not. I still can't work out how WeWork was a tech business, by the way. But like, well, you can't because it wasn't. Yeah, it's it a property was, business. Right? 
but then there's these other businesses that are totally unsexy, but they follow the same trajectory. And so I remember when Fo- years, and this is decade, two decades ago, or whatever it was, when Foxtel first brought cable TV to Australia. You remember there was just linear TV with a few channels and Foxtel came and brought this idea of cable TV to Australia. The level, I was, you know, very young when that came to Australia. Like, was that 1993 or four? Yeah, maybe? so maybe I just finished high school at that stage if it was then. And I remember looking at the amount of money that was being invested in this rolling out this business. And I just thought, how are they ever going to make back this money? It's so much money. I'm, I'm pretty sure they did. I'm pretty they sure they did. did. They did. It was ultra profitable for an extended period of time and paid massive dividends to the It was good sh- for about, I reckon it was good for about three years. No, it um, wasn't. It was good for maybe more than 10 years. Well, I'll, I'll look that up. Remember they, they were competing They were competing against Optus uh, Vision, against which didn't go very well. Optus, yeah, initially the famous and court case. Oz, yeah. Oz something? Oz Star, I'm going to say it That's was. Right. That's Star. They, they, they merged but with Star. I'm telling you, they, they bought Star. They got paid back multiples of their investment. And Foxtel, although we look down on it now and think, who the hell would subscribe to Foxtel when they're streaming? And by the way, the answer is a lot of people. Right, I do still. Yeah. You've subscribed to what? To not to KO or to proper the box. Foxtel? No, the both. box. How much are you paying for with that? Oh, we, we had a uh, long story, but not as much as you think. Um, $50 a I month. I got a deal. Yeah, we got, a, we got a deal somehow, but something like that. What are you watching on Foxtel? I'm very intrigued. Oh, almost nothing. I should really stop it. I use it as like a box. It's the most, world's most expensive recording box. It's idiotic though. Oh, that's what you're doing with it. Well, you know, I mean, there's, but there's still a lot of customers of Foxtel and KO has been quite successful for Foxtel. And so, KO has been very successful. Yeah, yeah and so- absolutely. And binge. The guy that runs Foxtel, Patrick Delaney, he I met yep. him when he was running Fox Sports. Like I met him in a catapult capacity yep. when he was doing Fox Sports. He seems very impressive. Actually. I, I think um, he's a really high-quality leader. And yeah. from what I've seen of the people that work for him, they're very loyal to him. They, like, they really like him as a leader. And I think that, you know, really KO, that was his thing when he – and. They elevated him on the back of the success of that. And interestingly... No, I think he... I'm pretty sure he was elevated before KO, well before KO. He's been CEO there for years. Yeah, yeah. But I think that was like his idea or in the planning because he came from Fox Sports, right? And it was like, how do we compete with streaming with live sports? And interestingly, the guy that runs Nine, Mike Sneesby, who was also a fantastic... Yeah, of course. It was Stan. Started Stan. You you bought... Don't you own Kudo? So Mike was running Kudo. We bought it. I remember Mike when he was running Kudo. He then went straight to Stan, which is now obviously... And then he now runs Nine. So I like to think I played a big part in in Mike's ascension to the top of Nine. Never thanked me for it. Well, he... I remember... I met him when he was running Kudo. And I thought, he's a very capable guy. Good operator. Also, a very nice... Very Very nice guy. guy. Very down-to-earth guy. Yeah. Down-to-earth and I thought, but this Kudo business is not going to be the best use of his skills. He, he, he seemed to be he was, <laughs> right, he was he was very senior at Optus, ironically, before that. Um, was he? But yeah, so and then he went ended up went to Kudo and obviously ended up run, then Stan then Nine, who had a great trajectory and done inc- incredibly well. Um, to, it's interesting that two of the big content businesses in Australia are being run by people that were instrumental in the streaming application yeah, of true. those businesses. Well, I think as they did so, uh, one quick disclosure, a luxury escapes TV show, we work with Foxtel. And, and funnily enough, we're, so we're on Foxtel now. It's not a disclosure. It's not a disclosure if people can turn on Foxtel and see luxury escapes. That's not a disclosure. Well, they can, well, but they may not know. So, But just, to, just another disclosure, which is more a, a, a brag, is we were, I think, one week, the second highest rated show 
on all of Foxtel or something, or maybe or certainly all of Lifestyle. Is that right? Or, like, we beat a heap of shows that we didn't expect to beat. So that was a great result. That's fantastic. Foxtel, did, Foxtel produced the show for us this year. They did an unbelievable job. It's. I think this is our show. I'm a bit biased, but I think Foxtel probably produced the best travel show in Australia, one of the best travel shows in the world for us. So um, thank you to, to Foxtel. Is this the same show that you're running on? Is this the same show you're running on 10? It's also on 10. So we run it on both. So it appears on Foxtel first and then it appears on Channel 10 a few days later because obviously not every season on Foxtel, but we do it on both and it's, a, it's been a great product. So can, can I just ask you some questions about this? Because I don't know the answer yeah, to this sure. and I think people... We are running out of time. No, no, we're so not running we, out of time. We'll it's quick. fine, it's fine. Yeah. So people will find this very interesting because I will find it interesting <laughs> as I assume other people will. So explain to me this process of making a show and then putting it on TV as much as you can. So you come up with this idea, we want to do a travel show, which is very smart. Like people love travel shows. So you go and do that. Then what do you have to do? You have to find someone to produce the show. Is that right? Yeah, it's a bit unusual. So there aren't that many shows that are kind of, we'll call it branded shows. We're one of the few. And I think it's partly because our brand sounds so generic that you can sort of get away with it a bit. Um, pardon the pun, because Getaway is another one. Mm-hmm. So scenic specifically and running Getaway for a number of years. Mm-hmm. But so it sort of works in travel. It doesn't work in too many genres. Chemist Warehouse do some really good stuff. Uh, Adam Hilton runs it for them through through Stratosphere. They do some really good stuff there. But uh, it's it's pretty hard to do. So we essentially pay for the full production. Uh, which costs quite a bit of money. We get partners. So you pay Foxtel. They're producing us. It doesn't have to be Foxtel. We're, we're, this is our sixth series, and we had a number of different producers of the show. Foxtel's done this one. Previous shows were other people, uh, other producers. But they're mostly – but these producers are mo- – like, forget about Foxtel because they own, like, a, a distribution yeah. network as well. But mostly these producers – that's their job? Like their company is just a production company? Yeah, we find a produ- – yeah, yeah, exactly. It could be Eddie McGuire owns production company, uh, Hachi owns production company, like always different production companies out there. Uh, oh, there's, there's heaps of them. Hugh Marks and is so they employ – They have producers and screenwriters and video ca- – all that kind okay. of stuff. And we have our guys. So you don't write this – you don't say, I want this episode to be this or that No, we, we essentially guide it though. Right. So we say these are the episodes. We work with our hotel partners and all that stuff. So – it's really a, a combined production. Uh, we pay for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get sponsors, uh, as in our own sponsors, so it's sort of funded to offset, to offset a lot of the cost. Yeah. Uh, not all of it, but most of it. Like, who are your sponsors for your show? You can you can call them out, aren't we? Uh, so I work with, with um, the guys from City who do a really good job, uh, a couple of the airlines. Um, there's a couple of different sponsors. So, yeah, and then the sponsors are really supportive. And they, they we generally have an integrated sponsorship across that. We have a magazine as well. We have a podcast. So we have a number of different stuff. So Mike, our producer, produces our podcast as well for the show. Which is, which is going really well. So we have a number of different media and we work with uh, tourism boards and cruise companies and airlines and corporate partners to, to work with them to include it, feature in the show. We, don't, we actually don't run it for – it's really good value for our partners because we don't run it as a – we're not a media company, we're a travel company. So if we can come close to breaking even, it, it works for us. So we It's just customer acquisition. And, it's just customer essentially, acquisition. Essentially. And customer yeah. trust. So uh, and yeah, customer brand, engagement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so – it's a bit of everything, but it's so far it's, we've, and we've got some really good, in, uh, really good people in house. Zoe, who's been with us for sort of six or seven years, has done every series, and she travels to most of them. Uh, our CMO often will travel uh, on set, so we're, we're very integrated in the show. Uh, Cam, who, Cam Dado, who you probably remember from your childhood, hosts a lot of the episodes. This series, he's probably the prime. We have some really Rebecca Gibney hosts an episode. Um, a lot of really impressive. McWell, who was on The Living Room, who's, who's brilliant, hosting episodes. So we've got some really good people hosting for us. Uh, Jimmy and Holly, who are great friends of ours, uh, ex-Bachelor. Uh, so we work with some great talent and some great great, uh, great friends and partners. That's very interesting because, you know, most people are not going to be exposed to this world. But this idea of, you know, professionally making content that then goes out into mainstream channels, 
it's not a very common thing to do. And like back in the day, you know, before I would say before two thousand, like linear TV slash cable TV, so linear like broadcast TV and cable TV, that was everything. I mean, that is if you had a show or you were a celebrity on on broadcast TV or cable TV on particular channels, that is where celebrity was. That's where it resided, and the shows were huge. But now the market is so fragmented for content consumption that it's easy to forget that there that um, broadcast TV it's still a very widely watched medium. Absolutely, uh, uh, still get a million viewers to not yeah. not our show, but but other shows get a million plus viewers. So, but we get well in the hundreds of thousands. I think you probably I can't remember the exact numbers, but five hundred thousand people or so would watch the show every week. Uh, so it's actually unbelievable. So it's a, it's a decent decent number. It's not like the sort of three million that used to watch Friends, but but it's a, it's a decent number, and it's well, been a great. I mean, I don't result. think Friends should be your bar. It's well, your bar to compare to. <laughs> well, That's a recipe for disappointment. <laughs> that is. I mean, as good as Cameron Daddo is, he's very good. He's not from Friends. <laughs> he's not. He's not uh, the great Matthew, the late great Matthew Perry. That's one. So exactly. I think I think on that note, we'll uh, we'll call it a week. It's been another amazing show. Mike's got a. Another big day editing this. I think we're going to have to get about 20 minutes out. Uh, But we'll look forward to speaking next week as always. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. If you want to submit a question for the show, please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Mike Liberale. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week for our weekly analysis of all things growth and tech.